You're listening to Travel Tales with Fergal. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to Season 3 of the Travel Tales with Fergal podcast. The podcast is a very simple premise where I chat to a special guest every Tuesday where I ask for five trips or places that most influenced or impressed them. My guests come from all walks of life with one thing in common. They all have great travel stories. As part of my Expat Lives series, I've interviewed many Irish expats about their lives living abroad. But my guest today is a little bit different as it is an Irish-American living in Ireland. My guest is Sean O'Neill, who originally hails from Boston, Massachusetts, via Cairo and Ennis County Clare. Sean is in a unique position to share with us an Irish immigrant's perspective of moving to America, but Sean also tells us an American's view of living and working in Ireland. Sean works as the Director of Corporate Communications with Transport Infrastructure Ireland, who develop our national roads and light rail network, and you'd recognise his voice as he's often on the radio talking about that. Regular listeners to this podcast will also know Sean's voice because he's been on a number of times, for example, this time last year, talking about the US elections. Today, Sean gives a prescient insight into both Irish and American life and culture. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you now to this great interview with Sean. Sean, you know the premise because you're my top um, listener yes. of the podcast, <laughs> stroke guest. You know the premise, it's, it's five locations or places that shaped you. And of course, you being Sean, you've thrown a left field spanner into number one, <laughs> Cairo, Egypt. That's right. Um, first of all, thank you for having me again, and uh, I do appreciate it. And yes, I think I, it's kind of a, um, it's, it's a personal uh, place. Uh, it's a reference that's always been part of my life. Because when you when you think of Sean O'Neill or you look at the name Sean O'Neill, you don't think of Cairo, Egypt. And uh, that's where I was born. And that's where my parents were. My father was uh, working for Pan American Airways. Uh, my mother was with him. And I have two older sisters, uh, Maureen and Jacqueline. Um, and they were there. And I was born in Cairo. So um, it became a real reference point for my entire life. Because uh, as, as we, you know, we were only there for a little while. Um, we, we moved to Boston, uh, following Cairo, you know, it, it was amazing that, you know, in life and what life can do to people is, is, is difficult and life, it can be challenging. And, 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 uh, my mother passed away very suddenly, unexpectedly, and we were all children and my father had three children, uh, you know, very young children. And we then, uh, you know, kind of went back to Ireland. So sort of in the sequence of those events, um, you, you kind of always wonder what Cairo must have been like, you know, for my, my mom and my dad and my sisters. And like, I remember my sisters mentioning six day war or seven day war or something. And, and they're like, I look at family photos and my, 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 my father has, has passed, my mother's passed and my stepmom has passed. And you look at photos and, and you kind of, especially when families go through those times where you're, you know, going through belongings and things. And there's a picture there of my dad with Anwar Sadat president of Egypt who was assassinated, you know, and I'm going, whoa, like, this is like my father, typical Irishman, like never spoke about all these bits of, of his life when, when we were, we were uh, together. And because he worked for Pan American Airways, he was almost a, a, um, 
I could say, a, a diplomat for America in a way, because Pan Am was such a, a, a prolific American brand. What was the and, phrase they had? Did they call it the American Airline? Correct. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, Pan Am, America's airline. Yeah, and and it was really a um, it was a prolific airlines of its time. And my my dad is from from Limerick. My mother's from Ennis. My dad started off in Shannon, carrying bags for them. And uh, he was he was um, the director, one of the key guys in their operations in, in Cairo many years later. And he was, you know, a Jack O'Neill from Pan Am. And, and uh, it was just as circumstances. My mother's name is Pauline uh, Malone, and she married an O'Neill. But my mom, <clears throat> there's pictures of me um, literally on a camel or not, and then a donkey <laughs> with my mother as a baby and big pyramids behind us, you know. And you, so you have these sort of romantic ideals of where you were born and people look at me and especially when we move to America and you start, you know, you get older and people are looking at you going, you know, okay, especially my passport or something. Cause I have an Irish passport. My first passport was an Irish passport and people do a double take to this day, you know, do they? To the, oh, absolutely. It, it says Cairo. Is that on yeah. The... It says Cairo. And even I, you know, I remember just a couple of years ago now, well, a good few years ago now. And you know, the world has changed and it's, um, Post 9-11 in America, you're traveling back and forth. And I remember at JFK uh, at JFK in New York and the security guy stopping me and looking at me and doing a double take. And I said, yeah, I walked into a plastic surgeon and said, make me a short, stocky Irish guy. What do you think? <laughs> and, he, and he goes, he goes, well, they did a hell of a job. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so he said, get on. Go ahead. You're fine. You're fine. It, it's a defining place in my life because of where I was born, but also because the juxtaposition of who I am, my name. And then as my life progressed, people always referenced it because it's where I was born. And it just doesn't line up in people's consciousness as a place that a person that looks like me and sounds like me would have been born in Cairo, Egypt, especially when we ended up in America. So that that's why Cairo is such a uh, important place in my life. It'll always be a reference point. It was always, even when I was in school in Ireland, and people would go, geez, you know, what's this doesn't, you know. But Ireland would be much more international compared to America. So it wasn't yeah. as, it wasn't as strange. But in America, it was, it was considered very strange, yeah. Have you ever gone back to Cairo? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> I mean, no. Yeah, because wow. I, I just think the people there, I think it's, they're very upset since I've left. You know, things, are, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 I, I, I have you a left desire. in the cloud, you mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. There's a lot of controversy, you know what I mean? The milk bottles left behind, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but I think, um, no, I, I, I'd love to. But I also, I, it's just one of those places where it's mythical in my own personal history. Mm. My sisters tell me stories, but they remember, they were just little girls and they remember little things. And it's nice to hear from them on it, but it doesn't come up that much. You know, it just kind of, that's where we were. That's my, my oldest sister, Maureen, was born in Liberia, Monrovia. Jackie was born in Ennis County, Clare. And then I was born in Cairo, Egypt. So it's a, it's a good hodgepodge of global uh, birthplaces. So God bless my mother. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's amazing that she was able to, you know, have such an expanse of, of, of life and my father had the same. But they were two Irish people in, 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 in North Africa and um, working. And, and back in, you know, it was late 60s. It was an unusual time to be there. And what was your father's role? Um, he was uh, director of sales and management for Pan Am, North Africa. Yeah. So uh, and that really was the heyday of oh, yeah. 
you know, international travel, wasn't it? I Absolutely. Mean, and I, and I, I, to this day, I'm still programmed to wear a suit when I, you know, I feel like I should wear a suit when I travel because we always had to dress properly and be on time, be well ahead of the flight, be there. And my dad was, uh, he was never late for anything, but just over time, uh, it really taught us a lot about the value of travel and the value of getting to meet other people. Like over the years, friends of my father's would come and meet us and they'd be from all over the world. And they would have different accents and different ways of looking at things. So it, it kind of really expands your horizon to say the least, you know. But it was a golden age. Like, like I, I saw a documentary there recently and it was, they were talking, like they were making, they were cooking eggs and for breakfast oh, yeah. on yeah. the plane. Yeah, first class. You know what I mean? Yeah, I remember, as a a kid, I remember as a kid, first class, like we, because my dad, when we were traveling with my dad, you get, um, you know, you get bumped up, they called it. And uh, it was, if it was available and it always seemed to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were spoiled rotten, you know, and, uh, and it was, but you were proper, you had manners. But I remember having caviar, you know, I remember caviar going, I don't like it. My father's like, <laughs> you're eating it. You know what I mean? Somebody yeah. gave us this, this lovely kind of wow. assortment of food and uh, it tasted like salty water. I remember saying that to my, my father and <laughs> I didn't like it. And, but I, but uh, I ate it and I thanked everyone for it and you were polite and that was it. But um, the planes were amazing, didn't they? There were those double tier. Yes, planes, the jumbo jet, the seven four seven jumbo jet. Yeah, they had the seven four seven jumbo jet, and there was literally a lounge area upstairs. I remember these winding stairs, and I used to hang out in those. I used to think they were kind of cool to hang out in just the winding stairs. And there would be a little lounge and bar and kind of music, and oh, it was totally fine. It was just it was literally out of the movies. And I was too young. I was a child. I didn't, you know, I just was happy to get uh, food and, and, a, and a Coca-Cola, you know. Uh, but it was great. It was great. And then we, we uh, second place really inter- intermingles with w- what happened is, is that we ended up mm-hmm. in, in my, we, my dad was um, moved to Boston. He had an older sister in Boston. He liked Boston. So they, they went from Egypt to Boston and um, it was great. We lived in a, a suburb of Boston called Braintree. Um, and then tragically, my, my mom passed away uh, suddenly and unexpected. And I, I just, rem, you know, you kind of, as a child, it's just, it, 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 and I think it's just, it's a momentous event for my poor mom, but for the whole family. And I think it also, it defines your life forever. Mm-hmm. And it obviously uh, was, a, it was, my mother was very young, um, but, uh, you know, it was brain aneurysm and she just, um, she collapsed and died. And my sister Jacqueline was with her. And, and that's what something, my mother would have been like 31, around 31 wow. years of age. Yeah. So. Um, it was one of those events, to say the least, that has had repercussions, obviously, um, for the rest of our lives and, and my family's life. Um, and we then were moved from Braintree, obviously within weeks, to Ireland, to my, to my mother's mother, my grandmother, where we lived in Ennis, County Clare. And what age were you then? I would have been four, four, yeah, around four. Do you remember four. that? Oh, I do, yeah. I remember, like, I remember, I guess I remember feelings. I remember smells. I remember a, uh, a willow tree. And I, I remember a willow, there was a willow tree in the back of the house in Braintree. And, um, but I just remember it's more of a feeling, really, to be honest. And it's, it's, a, it's a sensation of, of, um, of just difference is the way I would describe it. All of a sudden, things were different, you know. So we ended up in Ennis, and it was tremendously... Uh, all of a sudden, you had cousins around. You had your my sisters, my cousins, my granny. We had um, friends and neighbors, and we were all 
close to each other, much more, um, you know, that's why Ireland is so important, you know, is, is kind of in the sense of belonging and home. After obviously my mum passing away, it became a real sense of safety and belonging and place. You had kind of community, that real sense of community and place and belonging. And obviously that was a, an appropriate place to be at that point in our lives. And it really became the stalwart of where we had a sense of, of belonging. And we were there for in Ennis for a good few years. Um, I was coming up around. When you came over, you were like a little American kid. Did, yeah. Or did you not? Did you feel like like you were home then when you came over to Ireland and you didn't yeah. feel like you were an outsider? No, I think, I think what happened, well, no, I don't think, I know what happened is that you had a you had a sense of um, you obviously had a need and a desire, whether it be psychological or just the, the trauma of it all, yeah. <clears throat> to be comforted, and it was there, and it was there collectively as a community, collectively with your family, and it was obviously a very difficult time for everyone. Um, my father's life turned one hundred percent upside down. All of us, young children, my grandmother, you know, my grandparents, everybody's lives, my aunts and uncles, everyone kind of rode in and helped. And, and it was very important. And I think that's really what helped stabilize the situation over a couple of years. And, and uh, my father still was working in the States and coming back and forth. And I used to remember um, seeing my dad on weekends. And, you know, as a child, you don't realize he was over like every other week for the weekend. And you realize he was transatlantic flights, you know, coming back to see his children. And he did that for a couple of years. And, um, you know, we got established in Ireland. We had our cousins, got to make friends, got to school. I went to school in Ireland, um, junior infants, senior infants, the boys national in Ennis. And then blessingly, and I mean, my dad met a beautiful woman through through my aunt, his sister, uh, my stepmom, Marie. And, and um, he decided then that we would go back to Boston. So at that point, we went back to Boston. And that's really where Boston becomes my third sort of place. You know, it kind of Ireland in my sort of head, Ireland would have been, Cairo is where I was born. Ireland would, would, would have been the place that I had a sense of place, family, belonging. And then Boston became a, a new home, you know, a new home. And What I, age were you? I would have been nine. Yeah, nine, nine years of so age. Were you? Yeah, nine like, going on ten. Gorgeous. Yeah, it was devastating to leave your cousins, your family, and it, you didn't understand why and and obviously you do as an adult now and you understand as you got older that my, my father obviously wanted to be in my, in his, with his, 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 um, with my stepmom and, and have his children with them. And my stepmom didn't have any children. Uh, lovely woman. Um, she took on three kids, you know, um, and you know, my sisters were, were approaching their teenage years. So that obviously wasn't going to be easy. Um, I attempted to run away a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> in, in in Boston because we stayed with our cousins for a little bit in Dorchester. So we lived in Dorchester before we got settled, uh, and then we we lived in West Roxbury, which is part of the city. And were you called like? Did you like? So were they calling you like the Irish kid? Yeah, I mean, you were you know, and and my cousins in America kind of got a kick out of me because when I was young, when I was small, when we came from Cairo, I actually spoke a bit of Arabic. I used to speak Arabic, so. They remember, and they would be older cousins, so they would be like aunts and uncles to us. You know, they were a generation almost older, and and they used to always remember me that way. And they used to teach me like American phrases, like "go jump in a lake," or you know, like all these sort of things. And they had a dog named Butch that I used to hang out with, and we used to hang out underneath the stairs, myself and Butch. And uh, and and that was it. That's why I remember my first 
probably that was probably the first couple of weeks in in, in America again, you know, after Man passed. And you know, my poor my stepmom, God bless her. Um, you know, she was adjusting now to having three kids in her life and her husband and her husband to be. They got married, um, and uh, then we moved to a town called Braintree, just a suburb of Boston, from West Roxbury. And um, yes, we were the Irish family. You know, we were the Irish family, and we were from the people. You say, "Oh, they're off the boat." They used to use this expression, "You're off the boat." Yeah. And I remember when, um, as Simon, opposed to first class Pan Am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, far, far from off the boat where we like, you know. <clears throat> and and um, but it was just but a in their eyes, reference. you were an immigrant. Yes, in their eyes, we were immigrants. Correct. Yes, and 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 that's, you know, and I remember signing up. My dad then signed me up for every sport known to the Americans because my dad would have been a hurler and a, and a golfer, but he wouldn't have known any of the American sports. So I got signed up for all these American sports and. I remember uh, Papa Warner, which is American uh, football, American football when you're very, even you're small and you're a kid and uh, the Cairo thing pops up, right? So they're looking because they want your, your, your certificates, your, where you were born, your age, you know, because they don't want a kid that's lying, if, lying about his age and bigger, stronger. And obviously I wasn't either of those, but um, they were, look, I remember um, <laughs> one of the coaches going, hey, whoa, we got an Irish Arab here. <laughs> you know, the most dangerous man in America, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I, I, and, and they were looking at me and you get weighed, you literally get weighed, you get put on a weigh scale and all that sort of stuff. And you're staying your height and all that. And you're getting set for your, uh, and my father was just looking and laughing and they were having a bit of a giggle and they said, is this, a, is this a typo? Is this a mistake? It says Egypt. And my father goes, Oh, that's no, that's correct. He was born in, in Cairo, Egypt. And they said, where? I said Cairo, Egypt, and then they're like, they're like going, look at the kid, really? <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. My father's like, yes, he was born in Cairo, Egypt. It's one of the oldest cities on the planet. You know, <laughs> you know, it, Damascus is actually older than it in Syria. And they're like, oh, okay, okay, this guy. <laughs> my father was getting a bit, you know, mm-hmm. come on, lads, don't be so thick, like you know. And um, it was fine, everything was good. And the funny thing was, one of the coaches was Lebanese. One of my coaches was a Lebanese gentleman who actually. He started speaking some Arabic phrases to me, and sure, I've forgotten all of it, like, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's a lovely man. But um, but basically, that was my, again, another reference to where I was born. And you're kind of integrated into America. Everyone's from somewhere else. And I think that's even in the cultural wars that are going on in America right now, it's fascinating to think about how, as an immigrant in America, you understand you're not American. You become American. Now, if you're born in America, you have a sense of being American because that's all you know. But technically, you reference yourself, not technically, they all reference themselves from their Italian-American, Irish-American, Jewish-American, African-American, Laotian-American, Cambodian-American. There's always the add-on, you know? Mm. And culturally, that's what makes America great. I really, you know, truly, because the only true Americans are the people, the native indigenous people, the 700 tribes of America from Canada all the way down to Central America. And I think those are the only indigenous people. Everyone else is an immigrant, you know, regardless. And they reference themselves that way. There was a senator on during the week who was saying about how American culture is Anglo culture. And, you know, there was no one here when, when Columbus who wasn't an Anglo, arrived. And, you know, I'm just going, how could he not be self-aware of that? As you said, they're all immigrants. So. Yeah, 100%. And, 
I mean, even what America, happens? What what is it, like when you become third, fourth generation? It doesn't happen with the Irish Americans, I'd say. No, Does they're it? very no. The Irish Americans, there's a sense of place for the Irish because they always had a good chip on their shoulder, and they had to find their place in America. You have to find your place as an ethnic group, regardless of your, because once you have a name that shouts out where you're from, people do make associations and they do make decisions, and that's why. You know, my name with where I was born got people so, you know, does not compute, does not compute, yeah. you know, boop, 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 you know, and, and I think, and I think that's just the way the American culture has evolved. But the, the, the establishment of America's communications with, when I was a kid, we used to have a thing called Schoolhouse Rock. It was on every Saturday morning with the cartoons and all that. And it was kids of every hue and, and shade, and you were all singing songs, and it was all good. And, and you, you got you got a sense of place because being different was normal. You know, being different was normal. And that's obviously changed a lot now, in my opinion, you know, and, and I think that, um, but America is a great country, and it's an amazing, people are amazing, but it, it has its challenges. And obviously, they've been highlighted in recent years. But I think growing up in Boston, Yes, we were immigrants. Yes, we were off the boat. Yes, we wore it proudly. But growing up in Boston, being Irish, it's kind of like, it's not a bad place to be Irish. Yeah. You know, there is an yeah. advantage to being Irish in, 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 in Boston. So when did you say, you went at nine, what age were you then? How long did it take before you were American? I'd say, Do you know what I mean? yeah, yeah, I'd say, I'd say by the time, like, so because dad worked for the airlines every summer, we'd come back to Ennis. We'd come back to, so, so our summer holiday was Ennis. That was the deal. You, you couldn't school, behave yourselves. You get, you get your trip back to Ennis, you know? So you that's get, why I saw so little of you. Yeah. During the year, but you'd see me, you'd see me. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, no, I was good. You know that. But twice. Twice. You, you made it back. <laughs> so, um, well, my sisters were, were excellent students. I wasn't. And, and, uh, and basically, um, we, that was our kind of, that was our goal every year as kids to get right. back to Ireland and get back to Ennis in particular. And I guess you could say, I started noticing I was American, maybe around the age of 14 when I was back, you know, trying to get into the Queens in, in Ennis or, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, I was, uh, my accent, the way I spoke. And again, I, I, I think the challenge in America was that, People couldn't understand you for a while when we were Irish. So you adopt your language and you adopt your use of language so people could, so you're not repeating yourself. And that happens in every culture, I'm sure. But as an immigrant in America, Irish people do speak fast. We have a lilt to our accent. And we, it's because of so many Irish and we had our cousins and my aunts and, and my uncle in Boston and Dorchester. There was a lot of Irish people who had Irish accents as well. So you weren't, you're kind of in that cocoon. And as soon as you went outside of that, if you spoke like that, not that it was a different language, it was all English, but Americans would be like, what'd you just say? What'd you just say? And you get sick of that. You get sick of repeating yourself. So you adapt, you adapt and you sound, and there's less questions about what you say. There's less questions about where you're from. There's less questions about who you are. And all of a sudden that all disappears because you sound like everyone else. What about when you went back to Ireland then? (laughs) <laughs> Did you find it frustrating? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, the opposite happened. Yeah, it was, yeah. was kind of... And then in, in Ireland, I was the American all of a sudden. Totally. Yeah, and, and you remember that. And, and You're I American think, Sean. Yeah, American you Sean. Know? Yeah, yeah. And I think you become a novelty then 
in Ennis and you're going, well, I was just here a couple of years ago, like, you know, as a child, like, it's not like I, but, but then you wear it as a bit of a badge because you realize, Hey, you know, fair enough. I'm American Sean. And, and, uh, it, it distinguishes you, uh, from the other, from the others. So in you didn't band. find it frustrating then. You just thought it was kind of amusing probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think so. And I think also because I had my granny and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins, you didn't really care because you had, you had all that loving infrastructure for lack of a better term it was all there mm. and so if people were slagging you because you were american or you i was a bit pudgy or whatever it was you know um and then you know you get you, you get older you start hitting the weights you start working out and all this you come back and you're american sean you know and it's 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 you don't care you know and it's but i think yeah i think it was, it was there was teasing there was all that sort of stuff but you, you kind of yeah. it's that's childhood that's life you get it you kind of you got to roll with the punches you know so Boston, growing up in Boston, did you love it? Is it a good city? It's a great city. It's, it's a city that offers um, everybody an opportunity. Um, I know people have images of America right now, and some of them are very negative. But a city like Boston is absolutely um, diverse. It's, it's, it's conservative in a liberal way, which sounds oxymoronic. Mm. But the Puritan ethic is what really created the New England region and, and, and that sort of driven education. Whatever you do, there was a great expression in Boston, if you're going to, if you're going to do anything, if you're going to clean the streets, which I did, you're going to be the best damn street sweeper you can be. And then you can move on. You know, and I, I remember I clean toilets, empty, empty trash bins, do all that sort of stuff. You have it, to have work and to work is a essential part of growing up in Boston and New England. And it's part of the culture. You know, there's pride in everything people do. Um, and it's, it drives that sort of, um, that desire to be the best who you can be. And that's culturally what they do. And you've you got Harvard's there. You've got all that sort of stuff. You've got all sorts mm-hmm. of good universities, good educational systems, great training colleges, great training um, uh, for carpentry, electricians. You know, I have buddies who did everything. You know, and and I think that's what it offers. It offers everyone an opportunity. And Boston is great crack. It's fantastic crack. Like it's unbelievable. There's restaurants, pubs, historical sites, great neighborhoods. Um, you know, just sports. It's a sports town as well. So it's it's really and it's it's a lot of Irish influence as well. So that's not so too bad. A company I used to work for had an office in Boston, so I used to go out there a little bit. And uh, I kind of noticed that it kind of closes up early enough, though, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I was yeah. a bit shocked. Yeah, you said it like Puritan. Like, yeah, that's what I mean. That's, yeah, they have a thing called the Blue Laws, which was uh, brought in. It kind of closes everything at certain times, and they're very strict. And, and policing, you know, again, it's, it's, it's job. There's a lot of jobs in the police force, and they better be doing their jobs or else they're going to be in trouble. So, But you got to know where to go. Trust me. I knew where. Yeah, yeah you got to know where to go. There was a lot of places you could, you could go to. That, I was in city center. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, there's a place called JJ Foley's down by Downtown Crossing you could have gone to. And the, if you had the right knock on the door, you knew you'd be okay, you know. And where uh, would you go on the coast? Like you should go off to Yeah. Or we go we Hyannis go or was it where or off to the new what Martha, were they called? Senior, Martha well you yeah. go, first of all, Cape Cod. You'd get a job on mm. Cape Cod in the in the summertime. Uh, there'd be tons of Irish there. Uh, I got a job. I was landscaping for a good few years down in Cape Cod, and I'd stay with my aunt and uncle, the Fitzgeralds in, in Cape Cod. And you'd be up and out in the, at the crack of dawn, literally half five. You'd be getting down to your job half six in the morning. And but 
the nightlife, the crack in Cape Cod is amazing. Like Cape Cod is beautiful and it's amazing. And I've, a lot of my friends would, their families would have places down there and you'd all meet up on the weekend. And especially as you're getting into your late teens, your teenage years, you, you have, you have a driver's license. You can do, you can get and go to see people. But, um, Cape Cod is amazing. And, and Martha's Vineyard's amazing and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's accessible. There's beautiful little, uh, inlets and outlets and kind of mm. coves and things you can go to. Uh, and I'd recommend Maine. I'd recommend Maine and the northern up up in mm. northern New England. Maine is beautiful, rustic. And, where, I've been up to where the, I was up there in winter time. Actually, where the bush, where the do the bushes? Yeah, Kinney Bunker. Yeah. yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, that's a beautiful. It reminds you of Ireland. That's what I loved about it too. Well, when I was there, it was covered in snow. Okay, it was winter. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> but it was gorgeous. Yeah, but Maine. I mean, in it was a real adventure getting to the pub. Yeah, and um, chowder. I was just talking to my sister about it actually. This week, you know, the Boston chowder. Yeah, it's famous. It's famous. The little biscuits, you know, the yeah, little yeah, biscuits. Yeah, the crunchy biscuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mm. famous. There are institutions in Boston that are now gone, but they give you a sense of place and belonging and characters. And Boston has a lot of that. And I think that it's what people should experience in cities, what the mm. locals would experience, you know. And I think that's what, off, what Ireland offers people is that we should highlight what we have in Ireland because that's what visitors want. They don't want the same thing that they can get at home, you know? Exactly. And I think that's important. So Boston offers that. It offers a lot of variety, a lot of unique settings. It used to anyways, and I still think it does, you know? And can I just ask you, so people know your voice, I would say, from you're on the radio a lot. You work with Transport Infrastructure Ireland. That's correct. Right yep. Yep. Yes. Communications guy. Yep. So how did you get into communications then? What? Well, my, my background is my, my undergraduate work was in communications. I went to Northeastern University in Boston and it was a cooperative school. So you worked and went to school and kind of you know, worked and uh, you got, you got into your field. And uh, I was eventually, <laughs> I, I got a job in construction because <laughs> it was the, it was, uh, it was the early nineties. There was no jobs. And my buddy and I, Joe Driscoll, one of my oldest pals, uh, grew up with Joe in Boston and we both got jobs in construction with uh, university degrees. Didn't we had to work, so we got jobs paid because we, you have student loans. That's the one thing Irish students are very fortunate with. Like you, you graduate with student loans in America, it's it's like a bloody even mortgage. then it was an issue. Oh yeah, it's huge. Yeah, and and, and it's tiny compared to what it, it is now. But it's all it's all relative when you're when you're graduating from school and you got money hanging over your head. You got to pay back. Uh, it's not it's not a uh, Barack Obama, I think, paid back his student loans second term as president of the United States, you know. So, well, he went to Harvard. He went to like, well, he got a scholarship to Harvard, but I think for his graduate school, he had to borrow some money. But basically, um, after that, um, I got a job with a strategic um, communications company slash marketing company communications called Bronner Sloshberg Humphrey. Um, And then I got an opportunity to work with a startup called Celtic Vision, an Irish company that was bringing over Irish television to uh, Boston and got that going and we sold that. And then that helped uh, get me into graduate school. So I went to graduate school in Boston as well. I went to Emerson College for my my master's while I was also working. And at that time I, I got a, I actually got a summer. So I was in between one job. I got an internship at the Big Dig in Boston summer internship while I was applying for graduate school and the big dig internship turned into a job that turned into my career 
uh, it turned into, I worked my way up there and became their director of communications a few years later and got my graduate degree simultaneously while all that was happening. And I and, uh, got my graduate degree in communications, communications management. So all of that happened in Boston. And, and that's why I'm, I feel so attached, to say the least, with all the people I love and care for still in Boston, my oldest friends, some of my oldest friends. And I know my Irish friends have met my Boston friends, and they kind of grew up together as well over the years, visiting back and forth. And um, we've been at each other's weddings and things like that. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really great place to have your life experience uh, if you're not going to be in Ireland, in my opinion. You might as well be in Boston. And tell us just about it. Did you mention to me before? Did you do stuff with Tip O'Neill or was oh, that Tom, my? Yeah, Tom, Tom or... O'Neill, his son. Yeah, Tip, well, Tip O'Neill was one of the um, architects of the funding for the Big Dig. Okay, oh, okay. so so it was his. It was his. Um, the Big baby. Dig. Yeah, it was his baby. He got funding. He was Speaker of the House at the time, and he worked out a deal with uh, Ronald Reagan. And there's a great folklorish tale about this, which I will tell you. Again, it's folklore, but it could be true. So um, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States, a Republican. Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House, a Democrat. Ronald Reagan, a man from California, former Hollywood star. Tip O'Neill, a guy from Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, literally from bootstraps up to be Speaker of the House of the United States. And they started negotiating on Reagan wanting to get his budget passed for a thing called Star Wars, which was to help with dealing with the USSR at the time. And it was a military program that uh, would have lasers with satellites up in the sky and satellites would shoot lasers and shoot down intercontinental ballistic missiles. And they called it Star Wars. So real modern defense network stuff, right? And Tip O'Neill said, okay, fair enough. He was Speaker of the House, but he held the purse strings for the Congress because Congress was run by the Democrats. So he says to Reagan, I want to take all of Boston's highways that cut through the city, the elevated artery, it was called the central artery, and I want to put it underground. A gentleman named Fred Salvucci, working for Michael Dukakis, who was governor at the time of Massachusetts, came up with the idea. It's absolutely engineering genius. Fred Salvucci was from MIT, engineering, uh, and Reagan looked at him and said, you're out of your mind. And Tip, Tip O'Neill said, oh, really? Shooting lasers from satellites? That's going to work? <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, he goes, last time I checked, you know, you know, so basically they worked out a deal. And it was the greatest political deal in history for Massachusetts, but also subsequently in the great political folklore of this story, the actual expenditure that the USSR had to go to to compete with the potential of Star Wars brought True. down and bankrupt the USSR. That was one of the, one of the major expenditures that they had because all of a sudden when Tip O'Neill said, okay, uh, funding is made available for Star Wars, that makes it real. Yeah. So if you're a foreign government competing with the United States on a potential, this is back in the Cold War days, you know, exactly. and, you know, all of a sudden it's real. When someone like Tip O'Neill says, okay, fair enough, the expenditure is required. But in return, he got his, his big dig money. Now, this is folklore. Is it true? Is it not true? I don't know. But it's a great story nonetheless. So I always the classic say, Boston story, isn't it? it? Is, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but Tip O'Neill got his Central Artery Tunnel Project, as it was formerly known, and it became called, it was called the Big Dig. The Big Dig. Yeah. 
And it's funny, maybe every state has those stories and I only hear the ones from Boston, but any story I ever hear about Boston, the Boston guy is always the legend of the story, you know? <laughs> it's always best to keep your own. It's a bit like Cork, you yeah, know? Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, we would be, Boston would be Cork and New, and New York would be Dublin. Okay. Okay. Really? Culturally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So there's a bit of a chip. There's Absol- a little bit yeah, of a 100%. chip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's culturally where you could, from the Irish translation standpoint, that's where I would put it. New York is Dublin and Boston is Cork. So you, the next one you mentioned about a, a change in course in your life. Am I yeah. right in saying that? Yeah. yeah so yeah, where yeah. is that? That was in Montreal, Mo- the Montreal, Canada. And um, again, if we kind of retrace my steps as I, as I kind of came back to, you know, had my sojourn around the world and went to Korea Came back to Boston, got the job um, working, um, and you know, as I said, kind of after that, after the Korean experience, kind of went forward to, to the big dig and, and, and worked, um, worked my way up over a few years, and you know, I had a pretty had a good gig, but I was in the trenches every day. I was I was um, working, you know, I had two pagers, I had a cell phone back when people had pagers. That's on, I'm aging myself, and <laughs> and um, I was. You know, you'd be in the paper every day on the news every night and explaining what was going on because the big dig went from just to give people perspective, your listeners perspective. Before I arrived to the big dig, it was estimated to cost around three billion, two point eight billion. I got there when it was about seven point eight billion. Okay, and when I finished, it cost about fifth billion, fifteen billion. Wow! So it was a escalating. Anytime you're tunneling through a city, all the challenges, all the engineering challenges, keeping the whole place running. I mean, it was never, it was the largest and most complex urban construction, urban renewal project in American history, ever. So I saw a video of you in, from it, and yeah. it was like classic Sean, because you were doing your stats. Oh, yeah. you, love, you know, like, <laughs> we, did you go to the moon and back yeah, or yeah, around the world yeah, yeah, on good. a skateboard yeah. 20 times? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the early version. You were, doing, my, you were doing that in your 20s. Yeah, yeah, I was. You're still doing it. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it's reference points and can sort of it give works, people though. perspective. But, but it, was, it was amazing because you'd end up on national television in the United States and you're young, you don't know, you're just doing your job. But, but, um, Oh, but you look back at it and you go, wow, yeah, that was, that was really, and because you're in the trenches every day and you're on the news every day and you're working with the people you work with and the men and women I worked with were brilliant. They were engineers and, and finance people, lawyers, everyone. And you're just trying to, you don't realize that you're doing your job and you're learning more and more and more. And, and it's you, you, you're, you're refining what you do, but you're also experiencing the rebirth of a city, of an entire city. Boston was cut off to the waterfront by these hulking erector set highways in the sky that were built post-World War II in the United States. And it really cut off the city to its historic waterfront. We come along, put it all underground. We create literally parks through the heart of the city now, uh, a grid pattern. People can go right to the water. Opened up the whole South Boston waterfront for development. Now worth it's literally worth billions, tens of billions, and it transformed the city. It took a lot of. Um, it tried to integrate some of the additional public transport network. Created the Silver Line, which brings you over to Logan Airport. Uh, we created a, a massive tunnel across the Boston Harbor, the Ted Williams Tunnel, that brings you directly to Logan Airport. There was only one other, one other access point, the Callahan and Sumner tunnels, um, and then. 
the brand new bridge you see in every movie now about Boston. I was at the tippity mm-hmm. top, the tippity tippity top where that red light is. I've been up there. <clears throat> and when you watch those movies that show Boston, the big asymmetrical cable stay bridge, kind of looks like a capital A, you know, and um, I've been all the way up there. And I've been also 110 feet on, well, 110, 120 feet underground, 12 stories underground is where it went. And um, it was an amazing undertaking. All, 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 And the people in the city of Boston and everyone put up with it for a long, long time, but it transformed the place. But uh, we, we we're not popular at times. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. Yeah. So tell us, um, what? So you went to Mon- was it a holiday in Montreal then? Yeah, yeah, my, my this- um, yeah. So I was finishing up. Well, not finishing up. I was thinking about finishing up uh, my job. We were finishing up the big dig. We were completing um, the project. Was coming to certain milestones, and I just was thinking about my life and where, where would I see myself next? And there was opportunities to go to big companies and do other things and stay where I was at. And, and um, I was in Montreal for good, good pals of mine were into the formula one racing and the formula one racing took place in Montreal off the, an Island off of the St. Lawrence in Montreal and went up there a couple of times. Uh, but on this particular trip, I, I, every morning I get up and go for a walk myself cause I'd get up early and go for walks. And, and there's, um, Beautiful, uh, kind of walking down in the springtime in, in Montreal, and it's a there's it's kind of a university town, and there's it's a, just a real European feel to the place. And you're walking around, and I, I used to do this: get my coffee, walk around, get a paper. And I was looking across the Saint Laurent River, and just sitting down, and kind of a routine I got into up there. And I started thinking about where I wanted to have my life and where I wanted my life to go. And Ireland kept coming back to me in Ireland and Ireland and Ireland and Ireland. And I went further down the river and kept kind of catch this beautiful walk. And I just decided at that point I was going to go home to Ireland. And, and I remember making that decision in, in Montreal. And I went back to Boston, talked to one of my oldest pals, Joe Driscoll, and my, my old pal, John Enright, told him, this is what I'm going to do. And they know me. If I say I'm going to do it, it's probably going to happen. So I ended up in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I got a, I got a job in Hong Kong for a couple of months. And uh, then on my way, the company that hired me to work in Hong Kong on an assignment, um, I was able to go back to Boston via any route. So I used to go back via Ireland and I was arrived in Dublin. I was taking a train down to, um, Charleville and Cork. Uh, my sister lives in Brewery right next door. And there was an ad in the paper for an organization called the National Roads Authority looking to um, build out Ireland's road infrastructure, create a motorway network. And it was in the Irish Times. I'll, I'll never forget seeing it. And I said, they'll never hire me. They'll see me as a farmer with my American accent and growing up in Boston. And, you know, and, and I, I threw it in the bin. I threw, I read the paper and then I threw it in the bin. And then I, uh, I got to my sister's house. She had it right there on the kitchen table. I said, you have to go for this job. My brother-in-law was there, James, and my sister, Jackie, and you have to go for this job. And I said, that's, they're going to see me as a foreigner. I'm not, I don't have a chance in hell. I said, oh, Sean, Aaron has changed. It's changed. It's not like that anymore. You, you, you definitely have a chance. You have a chance. And Jackie says, if you don't go for it, I don't want to hear you complaining. I don't want to hear you because you're not coming back here if you don't get a proper job. So that's how it happened. I, I applied for it. I got lucky. Um, 
I, you know, and I got hired and I've been there ever since. Um, I, I, I loved my job. I work with great men and women. It reminds me a lot of the big dig. We transformed Ireland. We built out the motorway network. We made things safer. One of the biggest things in Ireland that the motorway network decreased significantly the amount of head-on collisions in the country. And Ireland had an old road network and people would pass each other out. And we all know this. And I remember this from all the years coming home. Very dangerous. And the old network is still very dangerous, especially with people's. But when you're traveling long distances, people end up taking greater risks. And they get frustrated behind that slower driver or that tractor or whatever it was. And the motorway network stops all that. There's no longer that, that potential to happen because you separate that traffic. So that was a big, that was a huge. And also making, instead of taking it five hours to go from Dublin to Galway, it takes two. You know, people can get jobs now in, in greater uh, distances from where they live. Companies can get employees now from greater catchment areas. Um, the regional economic activities improved tenfold because of the, the network. And uh, it's transformed the country. And, I, and I'd, be, I'd be challenged for anyone to say that during the Celtic Tiger era, at least we got that. We got the motorways. You know, we got the motorways and you can't pick them up and move them. They're not going anywhere. No, you know, so it's exactly. a good thing. And I, was, and I worked with men and women who taught me a lot and still teach me a lot. And uh, that's, where, that's, that's why I'm, I'm happy to be where I'm at, you know. So. And when you came back then and you started that job, did you get any, um, you know, with journalists or oh, anything yeah. or anyone? Did you get a little bit of who's this American? Yeah, it was basically the, the experience of my radio. childhood. Yeah, it was the experience of my childhood all over again. You know, you you'd so be, that's interesting because you're so you were like an, an Irish expat in America, and then you were an American expat in Ireland. Yes, yeah, hundred percent. That's exactly what it was. And, and uh, was it like deja vu for you then at the start? Yeah, as, as Yogi Berra said, it was deja vu all over again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and and it was. And I think, and, but as an adult, you, I also thought it was kind of funny. And then I got frustrated by it because you, you'd be at radio shows and national radio shows and broadcasts. And you'd see, you know, they'd have laptops in front of you. And you'd see the text coming in, you know, the text coming in. They'd be saying, what's this Yank doing? You know, what's this yank? Why are they giving this yank this job and blah, blah, blah? And what does he know about this, that, and the other? And I found it very shocking, actually. I found it very shocking that was such a vitriol that was so negative. In some cases, it was also very positive. Don't get me wrong. But there was this sort of nastiness to it. And, and because I grew up in Boston, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'd happily meet that person out in the parking lot right now. You know, <laughs> right now. If, you're so, if you want to be so brave saying that sort of nonsense, meet me outside. We'll see how brave you are, you know, and that's the Boston mentality. You know, people don't yeah. realize that if you mouth off to somebody, there are consequences, you know, and maybe that's, that's a ba bad thing. Good thing. I don't know. But I think it, it put manners on you in Boston. You didn't you'd be very careful what you say because you're responsible for what you say. And physically, you're responsible. You know what I mean? If, you, yeah, if yeah. you're a smart ass, you better be ready for potential comeuppance. But I found that to be. And again, I was a, I'm older. I didn't seriously think that. But part of me, yeah. there is a part of me, the Boston part of me going, what the hell's wrong with that guy? What did I do to him? You know, and yeah. it's unfortunate. And I, and, and, but that does exist. And there was that. And it's probably there still is, I'm sure. You know, I'm still, I'm still, still sure there and, is. You know, then, so you, you know, you're kind of unusual as in you started off in Ireland and then went to America and then came back. So you probably had this image. So you were, you know, when you say like an immigrant moving back yes. to Ireland, you know, I, I know loads and I, you know, I recently was talking to one and they were saying, Oh, the country's changed. They're not too sure about coming back. So did, did you have an image in your head 
and did it meet that image or was it different when you came back? I, that's a great question. And I, and I think that, um, yes, I had an image and it was an innocent childhood image of any childhood experience. And you, you, you have a glow of your, the protection of your family, the love of my, my, my grandmother, everyone around us, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, um, in Ireland and that association and my sisters. And then all of a sudden, you know, time moves on and people have passed away and, and the neighborhood's changed and, and neighbors have moved on. Like I have to this day, the best neighbors in the world, the Nocton's and Ennis and the, the Nocton girls, I chased them around for years. And it was like, it was one of the one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. And I'm still very close to them and, and they're part of my family and part of their family. And all of that, all of those experiences is what brings you back to knowing um, who your family and friends are and your friends become your family and vice versa. So I think, yes, it was, it was a, there was a change definitely in the sort of the image and the expect and the um, presence of even my town in Ennis, but the experience of the people remained the same. And I remember saying it to my, now one of the reasons I stayed in Ireland is my, 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 I met the love of my life, my wife, Cloda. When I came back to Ireland and I got the job, I met Cloda um, a year or two later um, and uh, fell in love and got married and, and, you know, that made me want to stay in Ireland because there was a point where I was thinking, oh, you know, it's not the Ireland of my childhood to your question earlier. And, and I do my friends, you were here, people, all my old pals, people were here, but they had their own lives. They were starting their own families and stuff. And I met Cloda and I said, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm staying. And I'm glad, so glad, um, because my life is much more fulfilled because of it. And I'm close to my sister, uh, my sister in Germany as well, my sister Jackie in Limerick and my brother-in-law's, my niece, Sarah. And, and so we have that whole network and my in-laws, my Clotus family. It's so important to me because as a child being shuffled around a bit, not, not massively, but, but with the circumstances of my childhood, having that opportunity to be with people that you love and care for and love and care for you, your friends, your family, um, that's precious. And I remember saying it in my wedding speech and a buddy of mine just reminded me, I said, you know, it's, it's funny about life is that the backdrop, whether it be Boston or whether it be Ireland, the backdrop doesn't matter. It's the people in the scene that matter. And, and that's what's important to me. Now, Ireland is one hell of a backdrop. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a beautiful backdrop and it's a beautiful country. Exactly. So we're very fortunate. And, and I do appreciate that. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my that's kind of my story. I remember, you know, when you were say a teenager, you were very much American shown. But then when you moved back, I wasn't like I, you know now I'm saying it like, but no. um, then you're Irish shown. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's just it's funny yeah. how how it goes. You kind of change your perception changes. Well, I think I think yeah, and I also think that I definitely um, again to blend in. Maybe my accent has softened. My Boston accent has softened a bit, um, and. I think that culturally it gave me an advantage because I sounded like this, even though I'd be on representing my organization, I sounded like this, but I knew the nuances of Irish culture. I knew the subtleties of Irish uh, innuendo and language. I knew certain um, nods and winks and what they meant. So what people didn't know, I knew that. So it was an advantage. Of course. And just on that, like, you know, being say, the American side of you then, is there little things about Ireland that then that you look at and you still go, God, that's 
bit strange, isn't it? <laughs> is, there, <laughs> well, is there anything about the Irish or, or is it, you know, would you even notice? I think the Irish have had such a huge influence in Boston hmm. that the culture of Boston, the sense of humor in Boston, that this sort of the hard cut thrust of people in Boston has a huge, um, is a huge presence because of the Irish influence. And look, there's many uh, wonderful ethnic groups that have influenced Boston. Don't get me wrong, but at least in the circles I grew up and ran around with, um, the Irish culture was prominent. And, and um, you know, I a good buddy of mine, African-American pal of mine, he, uh, he used to always say, Geez, how did the Irish take over? I said, well, they, they, unfortunately, they fought everybody else for it, you know? And, and, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 time has passed culturally in Boston. I think it's, it's kind of, it's not past, but it's fading a little bit. And there's other, it's somebody else's turn now, you know? And um, that's just the, the American way. And I think in Ireland, you know, we've gotten a bit more American in some ways than I would like to, you know, I remember living in Dublin and the language and the use of language when I'd be on the Lewis and I'm going, what am I in California? I'm hearing like, <laughs> you know, Hey, you know, Hey, you know, kind of, um, you know, and it's just the influence of American culture has influenced Ireland. And that's my daughter, Daisy, literally on a, on a daily basis. I go, were you in Hollis in America last week? <laughs> I mean, she yeah. speaks an American accent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's in a yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. proper yeah. American. Yeah. And that's the, that's the influence of modern culture and the influence of American culture. But I don't think the Irish have, um, no, I don't think, I mean, we have, I still love the country, the, the nuances like that get picked up that my buddies from Boston, when they come over, don't understand. Like, you know, you're driving down the road and somebody gives you like the little the index finger flicks up, yeah. you know, that's just hello. You know what I mean? You know, kind of like yeah. a bit of a, you know, and they're like, does that guy know you? I'm like, was he pointing at you? I'm like, no, no, no. That's just <laughs> recognizing you, you know? And uh, we have subtleties or, or, you know, that the Americans don't get. And I think that's, that's a good thing culturally for us because you do have to offer something unique in the world and we should hold on to that. And we should treasure that. And our ability to talk about anything is, is something yeah. the Americans are baffled with. I only I only ever notice that when I'm going on holiday, like when I'm abroad on holidays, and you know I'm going down to the shop in the morning to get something, and I'm saluting everybody, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then you get, yeah, and they look uh, horrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, mean, especially yeah. head down yeah, yeah, yeah. as they're walking. Yeah, and I think that's that's a cultural thing that the American that other people don't get. You know, Irish Irish people we do that, and and that's a good thing I think, and uh, yeah. and I think that's an important thing to because you're letting people know they exist and you exist. Exactly. You know, exactly. and that's not a bad thing. And actually, just as from America, that that's the thing I loved. I, I spent a J1 summer there, and I've said it to you before that at the start of the summer, I remember working in the kitchen, and the guy, you come in with the milk, and he'd be like, he was like, you know, it'd be six in the morning, and he'd be hyper-friendly going, hey, Irish, how you doing? And he'd be yeah. throwing me a chocolate milk, yeah, yeah. which I always then never drank, but kept throwing them every day to me. <laughs> yeah. And um he always used to like finish when he was leaving. He always used to go, have a great day. And uh, kind of, I, I remember just as the summer was going, kind of throw my eyes up to heaven at the start. But by the middle of the summer, I was like, ironically saying back to him, have a nice day. Yeah. And then by the end of the summer, I got it. And I was like, genuine. And even what I loved about it is, is you know, even if he didn't really mean it, isn't that lovely just to say it anyway? Absolutely, and I think that I think that in this, in this kind of with my communications psychology background, the inference is important to create a pleasantry that means what it means. 
it says what it says, but then eventually it has meaning. And I know people used to always, oh, they used to slag me, oh, have a nice day, have a nice day, you know, and, and in Ireland, they'd be like, oh, geez, Americans, you know, I'm like, do they read? I said, look, it's, it's about, it's about acknowledging, it's the way they, maybe that's the cultural, as you said, the cultural similarities is where we would nod and say, how's it going? How's it going? How are you doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, how's it going? How are you doing? How, how's it going? How's she cutting? And that's what the Americans do. You know, it's their way of acknowledging you. And, and it's a customer service thing as well in many of their industries, but that is a way of acknowledging you. And they're, they're genuine about it. A lot of them are. And that, that is that is kind of a strange thing coming from an Irish culture. That's what took me time to, to realize. Yeah, yeah it is know? a strange thing. And you kind of, it does. And sometimes Irish people, again, because we've got an edge to us, whether we like to admit it or not, we do have an edge to us. And, and you know, we can go from loving you one minute to cutting you down the next. So you um, have the distinction now of being the only person to get to do two happy places. Oh, you already okay. gave us a gorgeous one and it was um, West Clare. Yeah. So now I have you on again. I'm going to ask you if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths and think of your happy place. Where is <laughs> where, where is that? Do I have my clothes on? <laughs> I'll have to cut that part. <laughs> okay. Where, <laughs> so. Go ahead. Do you want to ask okay, me again? Okay. So <laughs> if, um, if you close your eyes... <laughs> So if you close your eyes and think of your happy place, take four deep breaths as well. Don't forget that. So where would that be and why? And before you say anything, pick somewhere new. You're not allowed to do West Clare. It's against the rules. Gotcha. Well, I'd have to say um, Verbia when we went skiing. I have to say Verbia when we went skiing in Switzerland. And I think um, primary reason is that, you know, you look for with things going on and my, my life was now in Ireland and, and I was married and, and kind of my, my, my life and wife and everything was in Ireland and my work and all you guys. And I remember feeling like all the places in my life that I've been and what I've experienced fell into place and they fit. I remember being on top of a mountain, looking across, going, wow, it's pretty far from Braintree, Massachusetts and Ennis County Clare to be up here on skis, taking a deep breath, enjoying the vista that is just profound and amazing and just wondering, wow, this is, yep, everything fits. It's okay. It's okay. You're doing okay. And I just enjoyed the moment and looked around. I went down the mountain, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, I like the sound of that. That's lovely. Yeah, so verbia. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast, so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review, as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Virgo.